Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everybody. I'm Tracy Swedlow, and this is Television Nation. I'm really happy to have... John Giegengack here with us, who's the principal and founder of Hub Entertainment Research, which is a great company, uh, and they do a lot of reports, uh, custom reports, analysis, and uh, John participates as a moderator at TVOT shows regularly, and so I'm very happy and proud to welcome you to Television Nation, John. Hey, Tracy. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Great. I reached out to you because you guys have been generating some really interesting reports lately, and I felt they needed to have more visibility. I'm sure you're giving them to all your customers, your clients, but I wanted the overall audience to realize the good work you're doing uh, and interesting work. So uh, you've done three reports recently, and we're going to go into, you know, maybe two of them a little bit. Um, uh, Do you want to sort of mention what those are briefly? Yeah, sure. We, I mean, we do about 10 different studies each year. Um, and, and a couple that we've come out with, uh, just in the last six weeks or so, I think are really interesting. Um, all of our work is centered on how technology is changing the way that people find and consume entertainment content. Um, but one of the things that I think is really interesting, especially about the last couple of studies that we've done is that, uh, is that they've gone beyond just video. So especially among younger people, there's other kinds of content that, you know, that most of us in the industry wouldn't uh, consider to be television, but that younger consumers especially uh, are, are more agnostic. And so they consume things like social media or podcasts or gaming uh, at a really high volume. And, and, for them, those types of content are just a big, just as big of a competitor for their disposable time as premium TV is. So, you know, one th- one thing we think is such an interesting and important topic is that is that as these consumers get older, uh, there are some types of behavior that they're going to grow out of. But every indication says that there are these differences in how they consume entertainment that they're that are not going to go away. Um, and so that means that they're going to be a big competitive threat for TV in the future. Um, but also there are a lot of opportunities to leverage these new kinds of content by uh, by content creators and distributors, you know, TV networks, video distributors to create content that's going to be even more compelling to these people. So there are there's there are both threats to manage and opportunities to leverage. So I, I think there's a lot of learning to be had here. Uh, like you said, there are opportunities, uh, ways to be part of those communities or and, and deliver that content. So uh, I know in the the first report that you put out, I guess, in 2021, late, uh, it was called 2021 Video Redefined, and you were answering three questions. One, do TV alternatives cut into traditional viewing time and to what extent, which you were just saying? Which mm-hmm. options most strongly compete with TV content? 
And is advertising or non-TV video platforms, are, are they more effective at reaching its target audience than ads on TV? But I know that the most recent report, um, which you just put out this month, called Metaverse NFT Mini Report, NFTs being uh, non-fungible tokens and digital objects and things like that. Um, and of course, this is all about the rise of VR as an entertainment, a viable entertainment uh, screen ed- entertainment option. Mm-hmm. Uh, very much uh, a part of, uh, or is one of the things that are competing for people's attention. So can you talk a little yep. bit about some of these platforms? Or I know you have statistics and you're going to show us some visuals in your report. Uh, how would you yeah, sure. To- yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I got some I can show you. Uh, I can just share some of the findings. So, uh, and, and these are all, you mentioned there's two studies and they are two separate reports, but they're really kind of related, which is looking at the way that entertainment and entertainment content are evolving. And what are the things that are going to be the most important, the, the things that kind of consume viewers' time and attention in the future, uh, even if they're sort of at a nascent state right now. Um so, and by the way, I, I just want to interrupt when you before. I do have an Oculus. I do yeah. watch it all the time, uh, and I watch TV on there. I watch YouTube. I watch. Uh, we do the apps on there. It, it is starting to consume my time. So I'm. Yep, I'm, it's starting to. Those are really starting to catch on, and that's uh, the applications that are available for those right now are are the kinds of gaming or entertainment that people are used to, but. But for every one of these new technologies to catch on, there needs to be kind of an entry point at toehold uh, that gives them a reason to go big. And so we think that, you know, one of the indications that a lot of the metaverse stuff and the NFT stuff is going to catch on is that uh, is that the equipment, especially VR headsets, are already finding their way into people's houses for more familiar things like gaming. But once they're in there, they're, people then don't have to go buy hardware to uh, try out new applications that's already there, and that makes the barrier to entry in the future much, much lower. It is. It's like buying a, a TV with benefits for $300. <laughs> you know, I mean, there there are so many more things to do, and you can watch TV. Um, so it's, uh, and it, it, we could discuss philosophically what it means to be more engaged and immersed and yep. how it affects you and, and the brands that you see. I know we might mention that here, but why don't you tell me a little bit about the some of the findings? Sure. So so in this same study where we look at all of these issues, uh, one of the things we look at is how are people divide, how are people allocating their disposable time across all the different kinds of content that there is. So we ask about, you know, TV shows, movies, uh, non-premium video on, on social media platforms or on Twitch, uh, gaming, PC console, mobile, podcasts, you know, e-reading, basically any kind of entertainment that you can consume on a screen. And some of the trends that we're seeing, uh, for example, is that the, so the graph you're seeing here shows the share of disposable time that people estimate they spend on each of these kinds of content. So we ask them to to take a pie 100% and allocate that uh, pie to these different kinds of activities. And so you can see, if we look at everybody, that the proportion of time that's being spent on gaming is rising and the proportion of time being spent on TV shows and movies as there are more alternatives to offer is going down. Let me ask you a question you can... before, before you go into the next slide, were you specific about what kind of games or were they applications that weren't like, you know, a fiction or, or nonfiction content? Because like I said, on my VR device, I, I'm not playing games, but I am interested mm-hmm. in 
various application experiences? Yeah, so we so for this question, we weren't we were specific about uh, the platform that the games were played on. So console, PC, mobile, uh, AR, VR. Um, okay. But if you know, and, but if you were watching like a like a movie on your VR machine, that would be you know that would be assuming people interpreted the question correctly, and they seem to mostly have done that. Uh, that would fall into time spent on movies. So it's really built around the kind of content you're consuming, not necessarily the platform. Okay. Um, and here, the, these bars are showing the different kinds of gaming sort of all aggregated into one category. So you can see that the time spent on gaming, just as one example, is is growing among everyone. But the the results are really dramatic when you look at people under 25. So uh, this was the first year that the amount of time spent on TV shows and movies has fallen the amount of time spent on gaming has increased. And in 2021, this was the first year that we found that among young people, they estimate they spend roughly the same amount of time on gaming that they do watching TV. So that's a, that's a, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the, I mean, and what people say they do and what they really do, you know, people are notoriously uh, imperfect when they try to estimate how they spend their time. But even if you look at this attitudinally, the fact that, they give as much conscious share of mind to gaming as they do to TV show and movies. It's really kind of a, of a Rubicon. Uh, there are some categories that are driving this. So we look at uh, esports. the number of people who say they're familiar with esports goes up every year. The number of people who say that they have watched it goes up and esports is really interesting because that is an element of gaming. That's not participatory. That's a, that's a kind of content that you just watch and consume the way you would watch other sports. Um, and so that's that's a competitive threat, but it, this is an example of the kind of thing that's also a big opportunity for traditional media companies because it's a type of content that didn't exist before, but does exist now and has a really big following, and uh, is is fertile ground for companies that are accustomed to making sports into a spectator event to really take this and and harness this new audience and attract viewers. Uh, that maybe have been maybe they've been losing as some of their more traditional types of content lose viewers. How how large is your uh, the the base of people that you uh, used to to explore all this all these findings? Yep, this one was twenty two hundred people. And are they are they volunteers? Do you find them through? I mean, how do you find them? Yep. Yeah. So all of our studies, we recruit people from online consumer panels. So there's there's companies that maintain. Uh, you know, very large panels with many millions of people, and they monitor those panels to uh, to keep them representative as representative as possible of the U.S. population. Um, and and we recruit uh, respondents from those panels. We are we only recruit people who have access to broadband, so either a fixed broadband subscription at home or they have a wireless broadband, um, and and. It's, you might be surprised to find out that even on online panels, there are people on online panels that have uh, that access them other than through broadband. So we rule those people out because we want to talk to people who uh, who could make use of these online forms of entertainment if they wanted to, even if they don't. Um, so our sample is not is not quite representative of everybody in America because we're leaving out those folks that um, that don't have broadband yet, which is about fifteen or twenty percent of people. Um, but it is representative of all of the folks that are at least on deck to participate in these new kinds of content. Okay. 
Um, when we look at how people spend their time, there are big, or, or I should say how they consume content, what devices they use, there are really big differences by age. So you can see that people under 25 are far less likely to consume content through a pay TV set-top box. So through a cable or satellite or um, telco TV service, and, and that could include anything through the set-top box there. So live TV or DVR or video on demand from your cable company. Um, they're roughly equally as likely as their older counterparts to use a connected TV. So either a smart TV or a TV that's connected to a streaming box. Um, they're almost twice as likely to, to be consuming content on a computer, usually a laptop, and they're way more likely to be consuming entertainment content on their phones. So, so all of that has an impact. The screen that you're using, the device that you're using, obviously uh, has an impact on how much time you spend on different kinds of content, especially the part with the phone is really suitable for social media videos and, uh, and uh, short form video. And, and even though young people do watch full length TV shows on their phone more often, they're still not doing a ton of that. It's mostly done on the big screen. Yeah, I'm seeing my, my 14 year old starting to embrace big screen <laughs> more and more. My uh, my 15 year old almost exclusively watches uh, documentaries on YouTube on a 65 inch TV in the living room, and it's the it's the weirdest. It, it's actually a big step up. Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out out there i can tell you about my favorite place to have fun chumba casino they have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void or prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus because she used to listen to minecraft uh minecraft videos on the tv and and I never want to see Minecraft again in my life because of that. Um, <laughs> I hear you on that. <laughs> yeah, and now and now she's moved up to these. Uh, and, and they're I mean they're really interesting, and they're and they're not sort of professionally produced ones. They're made by YouTube creators, so they're on really really specific topics like oh. like the history of anime or the history of Garfield the cat. Uh, but they're they're pretty cool, and she that's one of the great things about. The way technology works now is that no matter how specific and weird your tastes are, uh, there's someone out there making content just for you, and they're probably making enough of it that you could you could watch that to the exclusion of everything else. I literally um, published a, a television nation this morning with Nancy Denny Phelps, uh, and she's a very very experienced animation historian mm -hmm. and journalist. And there's lots of visuals in there, and she's in she lives in Europe, so you might want to give that to her. I, think I would, yeah, I will do that. She that sounds right up her right up her alley. She has a, a um, blog. She has a blog that uh, she can check out. I, mean, if, I, mean, I know this is off topic, but if she uh -huh. if she hooks in with what Nancy's doing, she, she will be a huge jump up. 
All of a sudden, seriously, Nancy is very experienced. Okay, back to our, your report. Sure. So, so all of that plays into you know what we're looking at here are uh, we ask people to give us their own estimation of about how many hours per week they spend watching non-premium online content. So for that, our definition and it's it's kind of a squidgy definition. It's imperfect. But we said these are videos that are not professionally produced long form TV shows or movies, but they're they're videos that you might find on YouTube or on Twitch. Uh, and as opposed to being made by a company, they might be videos that are made by a creator or made by an individual. Um, and, you know, that's it's still not a perfect question, because as we go forward in time, you know, the there are YouTube creators out there who have the production abilities that you know, that a local TV station would have had maybe eight or 10 years ago. So some of those are still pretty professional. Uh, and some of those creators have audiences that dwarf the audiences for, uh, yes, for many, many popular TV shows. But, but nonetheless, you can see that the amount of time that uh, the late green line is how many hours per week everyone estimates they're spending on that kind of content. The dark green line is the number of hours per week that uh, people under 25 estimate that they're spending. So that's it's becoming a bigger part of their entertainment diet. And one, you know, the, obviously there's been a massive expansion in the kinds of content that are available to people, you know, even just within TV, let alone the expansion, if you count gaming and podcasts and social media video and everything else. And uh, the amount of time that people spend watching all of this content uh, got somewhat bigger during the pandemic, but not, but not by nearly the same proportion that the amount of content has got bigger. So all of this uh, proliferation of types of content to watch has you know, increased by an order of magnitude, the competition for every, you know, every half an hour or even every five minutes of free time that someone has to sit down and watch this stuff. There's so much out there that they could use um, that, and, and, and still only one thing can be chosen at a time. One thing I would be interested in, and I don't think this is something you probably can do, but uh, would be to see the growth in subscription content on YouTube versus uh, regular sort of connected TV, you know, pay for you know, SVOD experiences, uh, or maybe just to analyze the growth in subscription on YouTube, because the, every time you click one of those, you know, subscribe me up on a YouTube mm -hmm. channel, you know, they're feeding you content that you're interested in and constantly, yep. and so you're, it's trying to attract you to spend more and more time there. So I'm just wondering about the effic efficacy um, of, of that experience. And whether that is helping to erode people's eyeballs away from regular connected TV subscription it, content to YouTube subscription, you know, what I'm I mean, it's a fine line, but it's yeah, it's it's very much a pull, right? It's very much a pull experience. It's a, a yeah, it, it's classic. it's absolutely it's absolutely a competitor in that it um, that it occupies more. Of people's time and that time it occupies is stuff they can't spend on something else. Uh, it's not in a, a competitor quite the same way that, for example, streaming competitors compete with each other because generally the stuff people are watching on YouTube is a lot different than what they're watching on a regular streaming provider. So, you know, if you were to if you were to compare it to a grocery store, uh, Netflix and Hulu compete with each other the way that milk and chocolate milk would compete for your spending money in a grocery store, and YouTube competes with them 
you know, the way that bananas would compete and that you still have so much, so much to spend on food and bananas are going to take some of that, but you're a lot more likely to be making a competitive choice between two kinds of milk than you are between bananas and milk. They kind of do different things. Uh, I don't know. I, mean, are... I, I love the analogy because I think I would choose the bananas over the milk and anyway, but, uh, but you might take both. Yeah, well, okay. But the but the point is that every time I, I subscribe to content on YouTube, it's very specific. It's very narrow. It's very much what mm -hmm. I choose as opposed to an entire aggregated SVOD offering or a fast offering or something like this. You know, it's going to require me to, to then go back into their application and find what I want proactively. On YouTube, they were removing that layer of friction and saying, yep. okay, you want to subscribe to this particular channel that you're interested in, we're going to feed that to you. Every time you open up YouTube to watch something, we're going to give you more, more of these yeah. other things you're interested in. So it's um, the specificity. As a, there's a lot of power in that. Well, to... you, yeah, you, you actually you raise a good point. I don't, I don't have it in this particular deck, but one of the really interesting things about, about YouTube and creators, and we see this to some extent with podcasts too, is that uh, when people subscribe to Netflix or Hulu, they're subscribing to a company. So that's it's kind of a, a impersonal yeah. uh, business relationship. When people follow creators on uh, YouTube or when people subscribe to a podcast, uh, they're feeling some kind of affinity for those those individual people. Right. Um, and and the really interesting thing about that is that. Uh, they, they care more. They're, they're sort of more of a two-way relationship. You know, you found out about Netflix because you saw an ad for it probably or because everybody's using it. When people discover a YouTube creator or a podcast, they sort of feel like they found it themselves or they feel like it found its way to them. And the ads, one of the ways you can see that difference of relationship the clearest is when we ask questions about, uh, about advertising on different platforms. So especially among young people, the level of trust that people have for ads that they get from a YouTube creator, for instance, is far, far greater than uh, the trust or the or the influence of ads that they see on a big platform like like television, for example. And there's there's kind of a that kind of cuts both ways for for YouTubers. There's a they have a tremendous amount of power in that relationship to steer people towards a brand, especially if they endorse something. Um, but they also have to be really careful about not betraying that trust. So, I'm, you know, I'm, we've all seen examples of, of uh, YouTubers who have, you know, endorsed a product and then later on were found to have been paid to do that. And uh, people kind of know when they see ads on TV that someone's getting paid to say those things. Uh, but when they feel like they have this more personal relationship with someone who's a creator, uh, they take that sort of thing a lot more personally. So YouTubers have to be really careful to to leverage that trust, but not to uh, betray it in some way, because that you know that that internet clout can can depart as quickly as it uh, as it arrives. It's a very fickle. Uh, I mean, in fact, a lot a lot of the YouTubers I, I've spoken to, I spoke to at your at your conferences. I mean, that's a lot that's a lot harder of a way to make a living, I think, than a lot of people realize. Just the amount of content you have to churn out the amount of time you have to spend thinking about your users and and basically not even taking a vacation lest you fall off of that algorithm and your stuff doesn't get surfaced anymore. Right. Um, I know, how, though, I've seen some YouTube uh, channels, uh, they've developed uh, partnerships with SVOD offerings. So, for example, uh, 
I, I happen to be interested in space, time, and quantum physics, and all that kind of stuff, right? And science. Uh -huh. And I was watching, I can't remember what it was. There's my brand recall. And, you know, at the end of the <laughs> Uh, um, at the end of this, it said that this is sponsored by, or maybe it was interrupted by, this is sponsored by Magellan TV, and I had never heard of it. And so I'm like, oh, what's that? What's that? So I look it up, and Magellan TV is a competitor Curiosity TV. It's it's another mm -hmm. one of those SVOD space science things. It's uh, And I wound up looking into it. I did subscribe to it. I did. And it's um, I actually interviewed the managing director eventually. This was like a year, a year and a half ago. Uh, mm -hmm. but the point is that, that they've got a, a very nice professional offering, and yep. uh, but I found out about it because they sponsored the YouTube channel on the same kind of topic that is being given away for free to the universe, but they're getting paid mm -hmm. as a sponsorship, and I found out about the SVOD serving, so it gives me more choice and more, you know, control. Yep. So I, I have seen some more examples of this. Uh, you know, um, there's there's a lot of examples of that. If you think about, uh, I mean, there's plenty of companies that take that one step further. So rather than you no, know, if you pick a, look at a company like Gimlet Media that uh, that's now part of Spotify, but they produce podcasts, they're really great podcasts. And in addition to producing podcasts on their own, the way a TV studio would produce TV shows, they also have a part of the business now that just does branded content. So eBay will come to them and create a podcast that is uh, designed for small business owners. Um, and, and the content itself is still really valuable. They're, they're high quality shows, but the whole thing is branded uh, as, as coming from eBay. And it's a really, really effective way to, uh, to leverage all the things we just talked about. So they're creating content that's fun to watch. Uh, that they've put time into making it something that would be useful for the segment of people that they're gonna that are gonna be watching it, mm -hmm. and rather than having an ad for the brand that interrupts the experience of watching, and uh, the best you can hope for is that people will tolerate until that ad is over and they can get back to doing what they want. They actually infuse the brand into everything that people are watching, so there's no interruption and the brand exposure is more or less continuous. Yeah, and when it's finished. Yeah, when when it's finished, people associate that brand with this this hopefully valuable and useful experience that they just had. So it, it kind of takes the idea of 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 TV advertising, which you know for most of the time that TV has been around, has been this thing that you tolerate in order to get access to the content because because you can't get it without it. And making the ads instead of that, making it part of the experience, part of the story, and and creating a relationship between. Uh, the company that put the ads on and the people that they're trying to reach. Well, I want to bring that back into these other platforms uh, or types of content that are competing for the the, the TV eyeballs out there. So I know you have more some more screens. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, and you know, I mean, this is definitely going to be a phenomenon we'll see in the VR universe as well. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, just you know, looking at podcasts for a starting point because I think this one is really really interesting because it it is a good example of both the threat that this new, uh, this, the competition that these new kinds of contents pose for TV, but also the opportunities that are within it. So what we're looking at here, this data is from December. Um, the lighter purple bar is the percent of people in the sample that said they listened to podcasts at all. The dark purple bar is the percent of people who listen that say they listen every day. 
And that's maybe the one of the most striking pieces of data there. You can see that. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 25% of podcast listeners in 2021 said they listen to podcasts every day. In 2019, it was only... Uh, 11%. Uh, and that's, you know, that that's borne out in the deals that we've seen Spotify, uh, you know, Joe Rogan, obviously, uh, but, but other hosts besides him, the three guys that host SmartList just signed a really big deal with them or with Amazon rather. And this is a real legit way that people are spending a, a tremendous amount of time and not just to listen as you would on social media for, you know, 10 or 15 seconds, but Joe Rogan's podcasts are like two and a half hours long and people are there. Tens of millions of people listening to the entire thing. Like that's a we, absolutely massive amount of engagement. We make sure these, these uh, video interviews are, you know, audio podcasts on all of those different networks. And yep. in fact, you, we get quite a lot of traction by delivering them as audio um, yep. you know, only, as well as the video here. So, yep. And it's, and it, that's the beauty of it too, is you can deliver it two different ways and people can consume it in two different ways. And the production cost is a fraction of making a big TV show or a movie. Um, the, the blue bar in this slide is the percent of people who listen to podcasts who say they have watched a TV show based on a podcast. So in 2019, only 27% of podcast listeners had watched a TV show based on a podcast. And in 2021, it's almost, it's almost half. Um, and that increase, a lot of that increases due to the fact that there's, there's just a lot more TV shows based on podcasts. Uh, than there were back then. Um, but it also underscores the fact that in this environment where, you know, peak TV is after a, after a quick hiatus uh, during the pandemic, it's now reaching the same level of growth for new shows being produced as always. The shows are more expensive than ever and they're better than ever, but there's so many that it's hard to win them an audience. Uh, there, there's a huge benefit for uh, studios and for networks to be able to find some kind of content, some kind of IP that will come with an audience already built in or with a brand that people will recognize and follow. And that's why that a lot of the shows that have been created out of podcasts uh, like Startup or like uh, Homecoming or like Dirty John have been really successful because there is a whole built-in audience of people who followed those stories initially or who heard about them. And then they see the same thing coming out on TV and and they gravitate over to it. The, the task of acquiring viewers when you're leveraging that IP that's already been successful is a lot easier than trying to launch a brand new show uh, at a whole cloth that no one's heard of before. I actually was listening to uh, a video on YouTube, watching a video, and it was, um, I won't name any names right now because I can't remember his name, but he was talking <laughs> about, he was talking about, um, how TV script, people who want to become a writer in Hollywood, whether for television or films, that they need to start thinking outside the box. You know, they need mm -hmm. to stop thinking they can just write this perfect script and it's going to get picked up. They need to start building all of their properties into podcasts or comic books or, uh, you know, other things. But he emphasized podcasts. He says the more you create outlets 
um, and familiarity with your content, the more and you build that audience, the more Hollywood is going mm -hmm. to be interested, you know, in, in in what you've got to deliver, and you'll probably get the you know a yes when you want to you know move forward with a, a movie or a TV show or series or something. Yeah, I'm I'm actually I'm trying to remember slip in my mind now but one of the very first shows this is probably four years ago and i oh man i wish I, I should remember the network but they in partnership with royal caribbean they made a tv show uh which was set on a cruise ship royal caribbean cruise ship and the star of the show was a youtube influencer who was really big at the that. time i remember that i don't yeah, remember and I, that. I, now I can't remember who it was but they but it was brilliant they took they 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 made the show they she had no previous acting experience but they just plugged her right in and before the show was even made she had been creating you know a video log as part of her as part of her youtube channel where she showed them making the show showed everything behind the scenes uh talked about the plot and the day that the thing rolled out there was already a giant audience. It was the best marketing ever. There was already a giant audience just waiting to watch it because they all already knew about it. And they'd heard about it from someone that they trust, who was this influencer who was part of the show. And it, it turned the idea of how you market a TV show with, you know, on the air ads and, and other kinds of direct advertising. It turned it completely upside down because the actual making the marketing of the show was just the process of making it and filming it. And that was all that it took for this incredibly successful launch at a much, you know, with a much different technique for building awareness and a much lower cost. Well, to continue answering the question, uh, do TV alternatives cut into traditional viewing time and to what extent? Uh, do you have another alternative you want to talk about on the screen? Yeah, so we, we also asked some, uh, some questions about kind of Web3 applications and, and the metaverse. Um, so I, I can tell you about some of these as well. And, you know, one of the things that we wanted to find out here is that is that the metaverse and NFTs and things like that are obviously getting a lot of attention in our industry. Um, but we wanted to know, does that, does that equate to a lot of attention and interest among consumers? Because that's often not the case. And should the TV industry be interested in what's going on there as a competitive platform or as a platform that they should take advantage of right yeah there, that's a great you know that's a great example there's the technology and entertainment technology is is littered with is littered with cautionary tales about people who uh conflated the fact that we can do this thing with we should do this thing so there's lots of things that technology makes it possible to do that consumers just aren't going to be that interested in and it's it's worth spending some time to kind of distinct distinguish between those two so we ask consumers, you know, have you ever heard of the metaverse before? Uh, more than half of people have heard something about it. But then we asked how how confident are you that you could describe the metaverse to someone else? So like what it is and what it does and why it exists. And only a third of people had even a little bit of confidence that they could uh, that they could describe this to people. And only 15% of everybody felt very confident that they could describe the metaverse to someone else. And we didn't ask this, but I would venture a guess that if you ask that 15% of people to describe it to someone else, probably half of them would get it would get it wrong. So there's a really high level of awareness and a much lower level of information in terms of people understanding what it would mean or why they should care. I would say that's good that that backs up my assumption, which is 
I think all of these VR companies slash, you know, metaverse being the new term of the last few years have done a rotten job of explaining to people what are these opportunities inside, mm -hmm. um, you know, an Oculus. And it's, it's really bad. Yeah, it, it, it's really bad. And it's, I mean, to be fair, they're trying to, it's, it's really hard to tell someone why they need something that they don't know that they need. So it's a brand new technology. It's not like they're selling a better version of something that they already sold before. You know, Netflix, Netflix was selling a better version of watching TV. Uh, the metaverse is selling a better version of it's selling a brand new thing that there is no analog for. And people don't have an experience now that they can imagine being improved. It would be a brand new experience that they've never tried. So that's always much more much more difficult. There's a um, lot more propaganda about bashing Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook for a whole range of other reasons, right? And not enough interest in what they're actually doing uh, with this technology. I mean, but the thing is that it seems like uh, the people who are willing to try it um, are finding out that, for example, an Oculus is wireless, which is very important. You can walk around without it being plugged in. There's a lot of innovation. Crazy, uh, a lot of innovation going on uh, in there, a lot of new content. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, you mean you, you raise a great point. So one of the reasons that, that the growth and ownership of these VR headsets is so important is that, is, is that the barrier to, to experiencing any of these metaverse things is dependent upon you having the equipment in the first place to do it. And that is, you know, the investment to get that is coming down, but it's still not zero. And... <laughs> And the trick is to, you know, just the idea of the metaverse, the concept, since people have never done that before, that doesn't really mean much to them. But if you take something tactical that they're familiar with, like playing video games or watching a movie on Netflix, and this device transforms that experience and makes it better or different, that's something that people could understand because then that's an experience that they've already had being made better with this piece of equipment. And so that's that's what's driving um the adoption of these VR headsets is people aren't getting them because they enable the metaverse, uh, but they're getting them to play games with mostly. Um, and then they are then on deck. They're part of the, there's a much lower barrier to entry for those people to try out the metaverse. And in fact, ownership of VR headsets uh, is a lot higher among people who have heard of the metaverse than it is among everyone, even though those people haven't necessarily used them to do anything to do with the metaverse yet. But back to the my point that um, none of these companies have done a good job of showing people what's possible, you know, the variety of content that's possible, not just games. You can browse your the Internet, you can watch Netflix, you can do all kinds of immersive 3D experiences, Star Trek. But the one thing that made my husband excited about this platform, because he, Richard Washburn, because he was very circumspect. Yep. Because he has been with me as long, you know, watching the VR industry go up and down and up and down. Because I've been covering mm -hmm. VR since the early 90s. Okay. That dates me. And we've watched it. Like Second Life. Yeah, a long time. And I've seen all those little, you know, Second Life platforms and, you know, world, world, uh, the world's platform. Long story. Okay. But the point is, as soon as he realized he could go do Google Street View mm -hmm. in this 360 degree video environment, not even like graphics, but just video, yep. and pop all over the world and experience this and see uh, these places in some cases over a decade. Because you can do, you can change the dates uh, when you see your home, like where you live. It might be from 2008 to 2022, you know, depending how long mm -hmm. if you has been taking this video content. 
point is that he's discovered an app he can spend hours in. He doesn't play yep. games. He's not interested in that. Um, he He's interested in, in those experiences, and he loves um, browsing the Internet. There's something about mm -hmm. some of the things that he normally likes to do in this environment that makes exactly. it better. Makes it better and takes away he takes away from him watching TV with us, I have to say. Yep. You know, yeah, um, I mean, and that, that's how any that's how any technology or experience grows is, is because it's not because people hear about this new technology and they think they want to get it for its own sake. It's because they see some application of it that connects with something they already like to do. And and then and then they want to adopt the technology. It, and a lot of times when you see, you know, you mentioned how a lot of these companies have done a poor job of explaining to people why they should care. Yeah. Uh, that's a, the metaverse, I think, at least so far, is a really good example of that because, you know, you can watch Mark Zuckerberg walking around in his virtual house and, it, you know, it, I forget what else he was doing, like fencing and swimming and talking to other avatars. And that's sort of interesting, but unless you're a fencer, uh, that doesn't really give you guess. some call to action, some, some, <laughs> some, some sense of urgency about getting into the metaverse. But if you see something that you already like to do done even better, that's the kind of thing that makes people want to adopt that technology. And then once they adopt it for one thing, it's a much lower barrier of entry to get them to adopt it for other things. But it's that first tactical need that, uh, that really makes the difference. And I, and I think so far, you know, people have had to kind of discover that on their own, the way your, the way your husband discovered, you know, Google earth within, within VR. Uh, I'm really excited about their new open arts uh, initiative. They, they're funding this whole thing where they're inviting artists and organizations that do art. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think that'll, you know, that might change the game in terms of making this a, a platform that is creating something completely new. So, and it, yeah, might, we, we, it might transform into television content. Television content might be able to embrace, you know, those kinds of experiences. That's further down the road anyway let's go back to your report a little bit because we're yeah so i so i think you're uh yeah. so you're you're exactly right you know kind of building on that idea of of things that people already like to do uh you know so looking at art or collecting art being one of those or even things like collecting cards uh when we looked at nfts we wanted to understand some of the same things so like what do people know about nfts already what value or interest do they have and and what would be the kinds of content that would that would make a lot of people be interested in nfts all all at once uh, and so nfts themselves are a new development but they're you know one of the reasons that we think this might catch on or one of the ways it could catch on is by tapping into this urge that people have already to collect things um and nfts is not going to work long term in my opinion <laughs> But, no, it's not. Well, it'll work better than non-fungible tokens, but yeah, it's not very. Uh, it's not very catchy. Right. But uh, this is the current world record holder for the for the the most number of uh, Funko Pop figures, which uh, I have about I have about 120 of them myself. So this is a. I only. I, I don't think. I, what is that? <laughs> they're little. They're little kind of like almost like little bobbleheads, oh, but they have plastic licensing. Plastic toys. Yeah, they're. Yeah, oh. they're absolutely. We well, yeah. got to leave them. You, you don't you don't play with them. You keep them in the box because that's how they retain their value. Uh, and plus, they look cool all stacked up. So I've got not quite as many as him, but but uh, I have a plastic toy. But, yeah, it's yeah, a I could, it's just If a I'd known, I, I would I should I should have done this in the room with my uh, with my Funko Pops, or I had a few of them here. Uh, I bought this for so my people, daughter. She didn't want it. Okay. 
<laughs> I buy a lot for my son too. Um, so, and, and in fact, Funko Pop now is, has a pretty big operation creating NFTs of the different figures that uh, that has had some success because, and I think it's because they are they are leveraging the same reason that people buy Funko Pops in the first place, but giving them this digital alternative that you can display in different ways and collect different ways and in theory is going to go up in value. Well, if they did like an augmented reality Funko Pop thing that you could turn on when you're, that might be interesting. Yeah, I mean, there are things that do like that. And and the fact of the matter is that there is this big market out there of people who already have that bug to collect stuff. So about half the people in our samples say they, they collect some kind of, of physical object. Um, it's a, a lot higher among younger people than it is among older people, which is which is good because those are also the people that are more invested in the in the digital platforms where you would potentially share your NFTs with others. Uh, a lot of younger people from 13 to 34 already spend money on digital collectible content. So the other reason that gaming is a really good entree for NFTs is that for many people, the idea of getting them to spend actual money on a digital good that only exists in the cloud is a is a massive you know sort of leap a, a transition of your thinking of how the world works. But for people that play video games who have already been spending real money on uh, you know to grind their characters in World of Warcraft or to get skins in Fortnite, you know Fortnite the game is free. The only thing they generate revenue from besides advertising is the is the uh, skins and other and other sort of cosmetic stuff for your character. Among gamers, they've already sort of broached that line of being willing to spend real money on digital stuff. And so NFTs for them is a much shorter jump than it is in lots of other categories. So that's another reason that we think NFTs are likely to catch on among collectors and among people that play games and especially among people that do both, which there's a lot of those. I'm kind of curious how many TV networks or shows, produce, you know, who, whoever owns the rights to those things have launched NFT op opportunities. A, a lot. Star Trek. Uh, had launched some that did well. Uh, the NBA has some. Uh, Tom Brady has his own NFT company specializing in NFTs for athletes. So there's a lot of. Um, I know Harry Potter has because I had to subscribe to for Harry Potter something for my daughter a billion years ago, and I keep getting these emails from them. Which yeah, I mean, the Quentin Quentin Tarantino is is trying to sell uh, an NFT of the script for I think it was Pulp Fiction. And and the, and I believe the movie studio is suing, trying to stop them from doing that. So there's there's obviously people have uh, we can derive that people are seeing some value in this from their from their actions, even if it necessarily hasn't come to uh, fruition yet. Um, some other things that we found is that among among these people who have collections, there's a decent level of interest uh, in some kind of online platform that would be dedicated to letting them share a collection which is really one of the benefits of having an NFT is that you can, you can show it to other people more easily than, you know, for that guy to, the guy can't bring his 7,000 Funko pops around with him and show them to his friends. Um, but if they were digital, he could show them if you go on his phone. You know, I'm always railing against the, these um, streaming op, um, um, outlets who have yet to really embrace community. You know, they don't do a great job of, um, of, of enabling this on online or the, uh, the manufacturers don't enable the software to create community underneath all these uh, SVOD and AVOD, 
you know, mm-hmm. opportunities. I mean, that's a longer conversation, but I really think that this, the NFT community, the sharing, the, the, the economy that's created between them, the money, you know, all that money, yep. going blood veins. It just seems like that's ripe uh, for these TV outlets to, to, um, to fund, to monetize. Yeah. Well, uh, they're they're creating of that community somehow. You're absolutely right. I I agree. Well, you know, one of the challenges of of creating a community with NFTs right now is that is that they are not all on the same uh, standard. So there's different uh, wallets you use. There's different coins, different currency you have to use to buy them, depending on which one uh, you have. And and the you know. If, if the appeal of these, at least some of the appeal is the ability to build a collection and share it with other people, that value gets bigger. The more other people there are collecting the same stuff and who are able to see your collection. So if you have, you know, uh, just one sort of limited group with whom you can share your professional sports NFTs, and then the other people that collect sports NFTs are spread around different companies and different other wallets. And you're sort of separate from one another that that's a barrier to growth right there. So it, it seems to me likely that over time we would, that they'll all want to adopt some kind of similar standard so that they can all, you know, people can take their digital belongings from one place to another. And in fact, when you read about, you know, the, the, the mission statement for want of a better word of web three applications in general, the, the whole goal is to take, you know, for the center of activity, no longer to be these platforms like Facebook and Instagram, but for the center of activity to be the individual person and all the data resides with them. And they can take that data and their history with them from platform to platform to platform. Good luck. Good luck on that one. Yeah. Well, it's going to take, it's going to take a while, but I think that's the, that is the value proposition for sure that, that these companies are pursuing. Uh, and this is just some more data on M- and NFTs, kind of the same stuff we asked about the metaverse. Have you heard of it? Um, men are more likely to have heard of it. Uh, younger people more likely to have heard of them. And the co- the ability to describe the NFT for to someone else, you know, what is it and how does it work? It's higher than it is for the metaverse, but it's still it's still not that high. Um, and I and again, I wouldn't be surprised if we went back queried some of these people who say that they're very confident about how they work if if we would you know talk to 10 people and get five different descriptions of what they mean so there's still a lot of of noise out there in terms of what exactly these are good for again we see the uh understanding or the confidence at least and understanding is higher among young folks and then we also asked what would be the interest in different kinds of nfts and we just picked these four because these are examples that already exist and people would have had more opportunity to hear about them. Uh, so the sports entity where you can buy uh, highlight videos, uh, where you can buy an entity that's linked to a particular player, like the platform that, um, that Tom Brady has out, Autograph. Uh, a gaming NFT where you're buying things that you can display and use in a game, which is, you know, those aren't based on, on uh, blockchain at the moment, but they the experience is pretty much like getting an NFT where you're getting something often in limited supply that you can then put on your character and show to other people. Uh, and then we looked at sports game NFT, the ability to have for sports games in particular, you know, particular athletes that you could then have play that aren't, uh, that aren't associated with anybody else. 
And so you can see the interest level is is pretty similar across uh, all of these. Gaming NFTs are are nominally the highest. Uh, my hunch is that that's because a lot of gaming activity, things that people do in games already are pretty anal analogous to what it would be like to buy an NFT anyhow. So it's a shorter jump for them. And of course, interest is a lot higher among men than it is among women. Well, I, I want to couch this with, um, and I think we're kind of out of time, but uh, uh, is the rise of sports gaming that's happening now, right? Sports, betting, and gaming. Yep. And I have a feeling that all of that is going to play a major part in, in having that flourish on television. And once the money goes through the sports industry, and uh, it always finds its way back into uh, entertainment. Yep. So I think that that's sort of the, the TV of tomorrow is uh, of how all that translates into uh, that next stage of, of, of television. Yeah, all, all of that, that sports betting is a great example because that's something that makes it, it fundamentally changes the experience of watching TV and makes it more interactive. And in doing so, that is what will let it compete with social video and with gaming and a lot of the more participatory mediums that that otherwise, you know, are poised to take a lot more attention from television. And I know that's going to find its way into the into an Oculus VR environment. So yep. again, kind of back into all of your reports about what is eroding people's um, attention in, in terms of regular TV platforms. Should the TV industry be aware of that? Should they do something with it? Um, is the metaverse and our NFTs part of the the uh, the new environment uh, and way to monetize? So I there's I'm sure a lot more information that you weren't able to disclose. There's a much bigger report. So I I uh, advise people to check in on your site. Um, yep. If, if you go to our site, there's hubresearchllc.com, and here's the uh, URL. You'll see it uh, to uh, grab their reports. What, John? Uh, if you click on reports when you go to the site, there's free excerpts of all of this research there that you can download. Uh, and then and then the full reports are available for a subscription if you're interested. All right. Sounds great. I mean, I'd like to spend all day doing this, but I can't. We've got to go. <laughs> Everybody's attention span for art. You know, we've gathered their attention here. Uh, we have to cut it uh, to a certain like. Anyway, thank you so much, John. As always, I learn a lot and it's a great conversation. Thanks. Thanks for having me. John is the founder and principal of Hub Entertainment Research. And stay tuned for, uh, for seeing him at another TV or down the road. Thanks so much. I'm Tracy Swedlow. Take care. Cut!